Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that was raised by what some people are calling the Great Resignation. And by that they mean the fact that people appear to be leaving their jobs in great and even ever-increasing numbers. Some new data from the Labor Department actually confirms a trend that took hold during the pandemic that some, apparently, 4.3 million people quit their jobs just in August, about 2.9% of the workforce. And those numbers are up from previous months. We began to talk about what does work mean to us in our lives and what has it meant over time? How does work shape our sense of ourselves? How has that changed over time? What do we think about our work time versus our leisure time? And what can this tell us about how really fundamentally life and work have changed in the United States over the last two centuries? And one of the things that really interested me about this topic in this particular moment is that last summer when the federal government was providing enhanced unemployment insurance benefits. There was a lot of complaint around the country that somehow this was keeping people from working. You know, they had this extra money and that they were being paid not to work, so they weren't going to show up to work. And what was interesting about that is when those extra payments stopped, it didn't change how many people were in the workforce. Mm. So there's clearly something else going on. And it might be a number of different things, but that got us thinking about the culture of work and what it means in America to work and has meant through time to work. And some of our favorite stories come from this. But I have to start, I think, by saying that this is a red letter podcast because this is the first time that Joanne and I have been in a studio together. I know. It's shocking. We're like sitting across from each other. It's, it's really weird. It is totally weird. <laughs> That's totally true. We'll have to behave ourselves. I know. So if we're in this moment where we're redefining what work is, I think it starts back in your period. What does work mean to Americans and how is that different than what it might have meant to, to people of other countries? Well, one of the things, one of the values in early America that was pretty consistent really actually didn't matter so much what your politics were. But what was highly valued was 
independence, personal independence, that you weren't necessarily dependent on others. Now, for some folks, like I'm smiling because I'm now in the room with Heather and I'm about to say the words Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) But Jefferson particularly didn't like industry, didn't like cities because he thought that they were pits of dependence, that people were dependent on each other. Farmers were independent workers. So personal independence in this early time of American history, some people probably actually took it for granted, but that was valued. That meant that you were independent and able to think for yourself. That's part of why property and land ownership was tied up with the vote, because the assumption was if you own land, you're an independent-minded person who doesn't rely on others for your own good, for your own money, for your own well-being, so you will be able to think on your own. So for a long time, that's really what it was assumed to be. Now, obviously, personal independence is going to get complicated as we slowly see the rise of industry. Well, with the idea there that if you work for somebody else, you might be beholden to them and therefore you wouldn't be able to participate in a democracy in the way that you ought to because you couldn't protect your own interests. You would have to do what somebody told you to do. But not to pick on Thomas Jefferson because, you know, we don't do that in this podcast. She said that with a straight face. One of the things that's interesting to me about Jefferson and his emphasis on people working and how important that is is that, of course, he's not doing the work on his plantations. And that brings up one of the interesting aspects of the meaning of work in America. And I emphasize that because one of the things I believe that the early Americans were concerned about was the idea that there might become a class that didn't think it had to work. And so they tended to emphasize that they were hard workers, that they were farmers. And those early images of George Washington where it shows him out in the fields, you know, George Washington was not out in the fields, was he? Not working in the fields, no. I mean, this is like, you know, at one point Jefferson writes in a letter, I am a nail maker. Well, no, the enslaved people who are at Monticello are nail makers, but that's happening on his plantation, so he frames it that way. So no, these people, particularly southern plantation owners, are not, you know, physically slaving, quote unquote, in the field. You know, you could say that merchants and men of business in some ways are working. But it's an interesting thing about early America that on the one hand, being a sort of leisured class and not having to work has a certain panache to it. On the other hand, you really don't kind of want to be that person. And both of those things are there at the same time, I think, among the elite in early America. I love your story of George Washington both riding out in his carriage with his livery and his matched horses and then later on in the week making sure he's just walking around the streets like any dude. Oh, yeah. Every day at the same time in the afternoon, he walks around in the streets literally to prove that, as you put it, he's just like every other dude, that he's just a person. He can walk in the street and he gets fan mail for that because the message of that is very clear. So yeah, it's kind of a mixed message. But work is very important to the early Americans as part of their identities as Americans in a democracy. Right, that there is value to work, that people are, on the one hand, valuing some aspects of what appeared to them to be sophisticated in what an aristocrat might seem like, but Americans are not trying to duplicate what they see as an old-world, aristocratic, non-working class. And that being said, of course, we're talking about the ideology of work and the sort of social construct of work, and left out of that are enslaved people and women and the people who are 
doing most of the work, actually. Right. <laughs> but right. that construction of work is really what we're talking about now uh, in this particular moment is what does work mean as an American in this moment, but working through what it's meant in the past, I think maybe tells us a lot because you've got this early construct and then it's going to change in the early republic. It is indeed going to change. It's going to change in the early part of the 19th century. And that's partly because, and this won't be a surprise, that's when you begin to have infant industry, which becomes more than infant industry in a short amount of time. But when you have the rise of, you know, the famous Lowell Mills in Massachusetts, which hired thousands of what came to be known as these Lowell Mill girls, these are textile factories that employ large numbers of people, and they are what we would now recognize as industry. So that brings about a number of different changes. On the one hand, some of these Lowell girls, as they would have been called, some of them go there because they need to earn money for their families, to support people back home. Some of them go because they want some degree of independence or money of their own. While they are there living on their own, the mills provided living arrangements for them with some kind of matron who would watch out for them in their living arrangements. There was a 10 o'clock curfew and men could not be part of these boarding houses. They were not on the premises and they went to church or they were supposed to go to church every week. But you imagine if you're a farm girl in the 18 teens and you could go to a dormitory, essentially, with a whole bunch of other girls around the same age as you versus staying at home in the farm and milking this expletive cow. (laughs) You know, it doesn't sound like such a bad deal. Well, precisely. And that's the thing is that there were other kinds of bonuses to that, right? There were apparently publications that the girls put out their own publications. There was a lyceum that was put up that had lectures. I think you could see 25 lectures for 25 cents a year. There were all kinds of cultural activities going on that these girls were taking part of, these young women were taking part in. And that was a big plus. That was, as you're suggesting here, Heather, all kinds of things that they didn't necessarily have access to elsewhere. So on the one hand, you see a dramatic change in the way work is unfolding. You see these women who are getting a new understanding of themselves and who they are and themselves as a group, right, that they're now with all of these other women who are roughly the same age. So on the one hand, that's a new sense of themselves. On the other hand, they're losing control of their time. They're working in an industry. They're expected to work 12, 14, 16-hour days. They are not independent in the running of their life. They're independent around its edges. And so I think we're going to see throughout this episode happens so often in American history. Work has its pros and its cons, and it's the balance that shifts over time. Well, one of the things I love about the Mill Girls, and we've talked about this, is that concept in the when the mills really take off in the early 19th century of what it means to work because once you've got the rise of needing to get all these people to show up at the factory at the same time so that all the machinery goes to work at the same time, you need to have bells to start to get people to show up. The ringing of the bells in those bell towers and then you get the rise of the idea that work depends on a clock. That you have to show up at a certain hour. And I love that because if you think about the way that we run our lives when we're not showing up to punch a clock, 
you don't say, I'm going to bake this cake and it's going to take me, you know, 18 minutes. You just do it. You basically work more on a task system that is integrated within a community, within your family. Maybe you take time out to dress the kid or to, you know, pull your child away from the whatever he's playing with. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) And so things get done for sure, but they get done on your own schedule, on your own time. And with the idea of clocks and of punching a clock, although they're not going to actually have that machinery at the time, you get the idea rising that you're only working if it's done by a clock and if you get paid in cash, which is a really different idea about the way we structure work and the way we structure our lives. And one of the things that that the law mills, I think, really do that illustrate this is that until the rise of the Lowell mills, the idea of an unmarried woman spinning which has to happen all the time in a colonial home because I, think I know where you're heading. Exactly. But go right on. <laughs> that spinning, women just do it. It's like, you know, you just you sit down, you ex- have some extra time, you sit and you spin to produce thread or to produce yarn. It can be made into clothes. It's very time consuming. So people are doing it all the time. And this is something that that young women do. And when you get the rise of factories where you could do that for a paycheck, the idea of a spinster, somebody who is not married, becomes a pejorative term as opposed to just, you know, it's one of the things you do to help the household economy. And that idea that you and I were talking about this before we did this episode, nothing gets my hackles up more around the issue of work than when somebody says to somebody who is a stay-at-home parent, do you work? Just highlights for me the idea that, you know, if anybody has been a stay-at-home parent, they know that is the hardest job that it's possible to do. Think about the way in which what you're describing here, both in that question, do you work as a stay-at-home mom, or the fact that what used to be assumed to be work, suddenly, you know, if you're a spinster, it's pejorative that you're doing this thing that others are being paid to do. Think of the ways in which both of those things, and factories generally, and clocks, are divorcing people from the absolutely most natural thing that they can be doing, right? So before clocks and factories, it's the, the seasons and the day and the sun rising and setting that decides when you're doing things or how you're doing them or how they're supposed to be done. But it also changes who those people are because the household economy, before you have people working outside the house, according to a clock, you know, certainly people are in other people's homes and working as apprentices or whatever. But the concept of the household economy that is based on the labor of the man, the woman, and the children all together changes dramatically when you suddenly peel off certain people and say, you're going to work in this factory, you're going to work over here. And the locus of what work is... Is and what family togetherness is changes really dramatically. You know, that's interesting. It just occurred to me that in some colonial homes, and actually even early national American homes, when a family, agrarian, a farming family, had daughters, that was considered to be particularly high value because they would bring men to them. As a working family, that was a way to bring more working hands to a farm before they branched off and had a home of their own. So even that is being peeled away from these early families and what used to be a sort of reliable, predictable working household. And I'm also thinking about the fact that, you know, the words we used to have for the passage of time, the country words, there are so many different words for evening, for example, because you didn't do things according to a clock. So you would do things in an evening period for which we had seven or eight different names. And of course, now many of those are gone. 
it's just making me think, you know, I live on the water and over the course of the year, you can see the sun move back because there's no nothing in between us mm-hmm. and the horizon. And it's something that until I moved there, I'd never really realized that you – you know, I can literally tell you where the sun will be mm-hmm. in August versus where it will be in January. And, you know, if you've lived that way the whole time, you right. wouldn't need a clock. You right. would say, oh, it's getting to be time for us to think about planting potatoes, which was a big thing in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> they planted a lot of potatoes. But that brings up what happens with the rise of industrialization and the changes that that makes in American concepts of work as not only the the people like the Lowell Mill girls – When workers in general go from being sort of artisans who work in small shops in usually some sort of specialized industry, and by specialized, I don't mean that they were doing widgets, but rather that most Americans in the period before the Civil War worked in an industry that took raw materials and turned them into something saleable. But if you were, for example, somebody who was a shoemaker or a candle maker, the shops tended to be very small. They tended to be shops where everybody knew each other, where you knew the the guy in charge, where you probably went to church together, you probably drank together if you drank. You knew each other. And that's really going to change dramatically in the mid-19th century. Right. And you're saying you knew each other, meaning you knew the person in charge of that small shop. And then also people who were making the same kinds of goods also had a sense of shared identity and shared craft and shared pride in the sorts of things that they were creating. And there was a sense then, at least historians have argued, and certainly anecdotally it seems to be borne out, that there was much more of a continuing sense of communal work that is, you know, if you're husband was sick and you couldn't show up to work, they understood that. That was like, you know, I know he's dying, so take your time or whatever. Or there was slack built into the system that helped to keep conditions relatively palatable for white workers. And that's going to be a really important transition that they go through. The same, of course, is not true for enslaved workers. For 19th century white workers who go from small towns to working in these increasingly growing factories, there's a critical question which does include the whole question of enslaved labor, and that's the relationship of individuals to work. When work becomes extractive, as it is in the American South or in the American West, or is these large, highly capitalized, really big Industries And for the second half of the 19th century, or really from the 1850s on, when people are critiquing the use of labor in these highly capitalized professions where individual skill is far less important than simply showing up to put the glue on the box or sew the seam or feed the furnace, that's going to change the way Americans think about the relationship between individuals and work, employers, and capital. The word that is on the edge of my lips here is machine. In a sense, you become, in several senses of that word, a part of a machine, a working machine, so that you are, and this sounds like such historian talk, to say you are part of the capitalist system, but you are, right? You are becoming part of a routine of capital in which you're creating things, and it's your purpose, your importance, is that you are there doing your job in the way that it needs to get done, along with a lot of other people doing the precise same thing in a reliable, predictable, time-punched kind of a way. But that changes people from being in control of their work and being able to feel pride into their work into being exchangeable. 
Right. And in some sense, potentially anonymous. And divorces the idea of individual ability and individual input from the outcome. And that's something in the middle of the 19th century that lots of people are struggling with. I mean, we talk a lot about Karl Marx and wondering about the relationship between individuals and production, who owns the means of production and who is responsible for the value in labor, all those things. But he's only one of many people who are wondering what it means to turn human production into these large-scale enterprises. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was one of those who spends a lot of time wondering about what does it mean when all of a sudden one person can be exchanged for another person and it doesn't really matter who they are pushing that particular lever. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So there's a change in how people understand their own importance. There's a change in how people are understanding their work with the rise of industry. There's a change in that sense of how others understand the significance and importance of individuals and that people are exchangeable. So already from the place where we began this conversation, there's a vast change between individuals feeling personally independent and taking pride in their work to moving into these situations where they're increasingly giving up power and independence and individuality. In a sense, that sounds very modern to us, that we're sort of heading into modern territory. How does that trajectory move forward? Well, actually, that's a really interesting observation because I'm sitting over here thinking that to take it from the position not from the actual workers but from the people who become known as capitalists and I think even the enslavers before the Civil War, what those people who were in charge of commanding work begin to say is that the individual worker doesn't matter. What matters is that the individual workers produce so much that we can amass that money and move the entire country forward. So yes, we're going to have to break a few eggs, but oh, isn't the omelet yummy? Of course, <laughs> the the workers see it very differently. And pretty quickly after the Civil War, they begin to say, first of all, that they want to have more control over their wages and over their hours and over their conditions. And they begin to argue for limits to how long a person could work. So it's actually Grant in 69, 1869, who signs an order that the federal government will not work anybody longer than eight hours a day. 
what's interesting, too, is that kind of an awareness and that kind of resistance happens, as you're suggesting, later in the 19th century. But what struck me in reading and preparing for this episode was the discovery that in the early 19th century, in these very early industries, these textile mills in Massachusetts, even there, you had early labor organization and early protest and early petitioning about hours being too long and and their workers wanting some limit to the hours. So at a very early point, when you bring all these people together and you together get a sense of what they're being asked to do, that sense of community, I think, drives people to understand the price of what they're doing and to have the the power and the impetus to make a demand about it. But, you know, that goes back to what you were saying about work being about who you are, not just what you do, but who you are, and it it being an object of sort of self-identity, self-determination, that you have the right to first perhaps to have some control over your work, but second of all, to be able to limit the hours that somebody else can command of you. And it's, you know, the idea of only working eight hours a day is radical at the time. It's part of the eight-hour movement. When the government first starts to keep statistics in 1890 about how long people are working, they discover that in industries, people are actually working 100-hour work weeks. 100 hours. Now, they're working seven days a week usually. I mean, think about what that looks like. I mean, 100 hours. What that means then is that those individuals have been reduced to simply machines. They have no time to do anything but work and sleep. And they probably are even eating on the job. So that concept of sort of reducing the human being to a machine in order to move industry forward, in order to make more money, in order to move the country forward, has really reached a peak in the 1890s. Right. Here we're talking about individuals being made, sort of mechanized part of a system so that their individuality is being stamped out. But then – Looking a little bit further ahead. I'm so sorry. I just have to say it just occurred to me. The Tin Man, of course. Oh. <laughs> From The Wizard of Oz. From The Wizard who, of Oz. Who was quite deliberately written to be a worker who yeah. has been me- mechanized. Truly mechanized yeah. and doesn't have a heart. Yes, but he does really. Yeah. And he's about to find it in about 30 seconds, I think, from the look on your face. <laughs> well, I was about to gesture towards a different kind of sense of work, a different kind of importance, a different kind of goal on the part of workers that comes up when we're moving ahead into the 20th century. And it's not surprising, given everything here, Heather, that you and I are talking about, the climate of work and about the nature of being a worker in that climate, hardly surprising that strikes go off the charts as far as the number of strikes happening. It makes perfect sense. You have a bunch of people. It's the downside for employers that when they bring that many employees together, they have a group identity and can together understand if they're being abused and can take action and go on strike. So it makes perfect sense. That really becomes a common phenomenon when you're getting to the end of the 19th century. And that period is just absolutely characterized by strikes and by very high turnover for workers who in the early 20th century sort of reach back to the Lowell Mill girls and the concepts of Lowell where the idea was that the employers were going to be sort of paternalistic and provide this great system for their workers. And in the early 20th century in America, we get the idea of welfare capitalism taking off with the idea that if employers sort of created a better system for the workers, they'd stop organizing, they'd stop being unionized, they'd stop striking. And so in 1914, you get Henry Ford introducing a $5 a day 
pay scale, which is a huge jump for a lot of people. And you get this idea of company baseball teams and company picnics and the idea that somehow that you will, in fact, be handing over your identity as a worker to an employer. Oh, you're part of a team. You're part of a team. And all those things that used to be before the mills part of your community are now going to be provided to you or centered around your employer. And that idea of making sure that there's not going to be striking, there's not going to be labor unrest, and there is going to be this sense that we're all in it for the company helps to tamp down striking. And of course, that all tends to fall apart during the Depression when everybody's out of work. And then with World War II, the New Deal gives a lot of protection to workers. And with that, then we get this whole late 20th century phenomenon, which is entirely different. And that's when you move into the idea of being, as it would have been called at the time, a company man, that you find your way into one of these companies that treats you well and has all kinds of benefits and attracts you at a young age and you sort of work your way up in the company and the company in that sense kind of owns you, but it's in a very different way from what we have been talking about in the beginning of this episode. It really is It's sort of a move from we're all part of the same team, we're all part of the same family, to I have signed on for this. I am now part of this endeavor. And my identity is wrapped up with this company and what I do for this company. In part because of the extraordinary protections for labor in that period and the regulations on business, you know, those are the people you and I grew up with as our parents' generation. And yes, you could have a career as something like a towel salesman for a major corporation and have a nice house and be able to support a baby boom family and have real loyalty to that organization, not necessarily only for you, but even sometimes for your children, that they would want to go ahead and join that same company. Right. In that sense, truly is a big family, one big family. And then things change. And then things change. This is interesting because this is something, as you just suggested, changing in our lifetime, right, that our parents' generation are still part of that idea, that they find the company, that they buy into, quote, unquote, that company. They're part of it. They move up in it. They can have good lives with it. That changes. So you and I, the same age, I know we've said that a lot of times on this show, We were at a time when we didn't necessarily assume that we were going to sign on to a company in that way, but we did assume that we would find a career, and that was like all capital letters, a career, and that in some way or another, we would move up in the career, and that that might involve changing a job once or twice or three times, but not regularly, and still, in some way, that there would be some stability in that and and some predictable progression in that, and that that was the way grown-ups operated out there in the working world. And it's really interesting because that is almost the image of the post-World War II America, and yet it was an image that was unattainable to most American workers who were not part of a a company like that and ended up nailing together a bunch of different jobs, if you will, which is, to me, a really interesting thing because they, in many ways, in rural areas, in minority areas, retained ownership of their time and of the ways in which they made their money. 
I was actually reading about this, about how, you know, in many communities, people will work five or six small jobs, which gives them great cushions when things go bad because, okay, so those three things don't work any longer, but I've got these and this one of these is doing much better. And so they kind of are jacks of all trades, if you will. And I remember after 2008 when there was a big crash and a lot of people lost a lot of money and a lot of people lost their jobs and the people that I knew who had this system of working could say, well, yeah, this is falling apart, but I've still got this to rely on. It's and a it different was, kind of personal independence. It was a different kind of personal independence. And I remember, too, one of the things that, that I suspect you remember as well is when we were younger, back when we were doing the transition from the company man and the idea that people would go onto Wall Street and that would be their job or they'd go to work for a big company and that would be their job, how surprised they were when they got fired. That, you know, wait a minute here, you were supposed to take care of me. That was part of the whole deal. I signed on. I've been doing a good job. I'm this many years from retirement. What do you mean you're tossing me out? And particularly when that happens on a mass scale, right? Particularly when it's not that you've done something wrong and you're being fired. It's that, you know, I was actually once part of a mass firing in which a whole chunk of a company that I worked for was fired on the same day. And they filed us into a room in groups and then told us in groups that we no longer had a job. And it was quite something, you know, because it was, I'd worked there for a while, right? And I had come back from lunch and didn't have a job. Maybe it's the first time in that kind of a job, in an office job, that I felt that, as we've been saying, exchangeable, right? That I was just a sort of level of middle-ranked employee that, you know, they were going to keep the important people and they were going to keep the workers and all the middle people, they just decided, <laughs> we, didn't, we don't need you anymore. We fired you. It was a strange thing that changed my sense of myself and where I worked and what my importance was. And there were a lot of people who made that same realization, that the company loyalty was not being reciprocated after the 1980s. Right. And when we think about where we are in this moment today, it seems to me that that probably has a lot to do with where we are in the wake of this pandemic and mm. this changing concept of work and this great resignation that so many people who believed initially about the idea of the post-World War II idea of the company and loyalty to the company and the company would pay you back, that I think is largely gone. Yeah. Not entirely, of course, but, but largely gone. But you and I gone. deal with college students – and we are sort of on the front line of watching young people have to readjust their sense of what they're expecting, what they're looking towards, what they assume their future is going to be like. And it's certainly clear to me, I assume it's clear to you too, they have some drastically different expectations. Yes, and they no longer believe that they're going to have one career. Correct. Now they are much more closely focused on their own skill set, on their own interests. And I don't disagree with that because the other piece that I think we're revisiting in a way like we did in the middle of the 19th century is that the new technologies mean that many of them will end up working in jobs that haven't been invented yet. Right. And so what is the point of saying, yes, I'm going to be a software designer for, you know, some company that's going to be defunct in two years, you know, I, I'm not going to go ahead and give my loyalty to that company. I'm going to learn to design software and to, kn to know how to pivot because otherwise I'm not going to be employable after I'm, you know, an old lady at 30. <laughs> that gets a harumph. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's interesting because like the people you mentioned a few minutes ago that you know who have, you know, maybe five different kinds of gigs and they can balance them. 
you just used the word pivot referring to these young people. In a sense, it's a similar mentality. You're not going to place all your bets on one kind of job, not only that you might not know that it exists, but whatever you're planning to do now might not exist in the future. Well, and the other thing that about this particular moment is, of course, that with the lack of labor protections and the lack of regulation, the period really since the beginning of the 1980s, the conditions under which many people have worked have gotten to the point that they realized with the pandemic that it just was not worth their time. Right. But what's really interesting to me about that is the reactions of people who often, at least from what I have been reading, had done this weird pivot from, yes, you're an essential worker, yes, you're incredibly important, to saying, you need to get back into that particular fast food restaurant and work. You, you should be grateful to be right. working for that price, and you right. should not want to raise, and you should not want all those things that you're not willing to work without. And we, you know, we don't want to pay extra for you to serve me my you know, French fries. In and a climate of danger. In a climate of danger. And that that's sort of what I think we're, we're getting at here is the changing meaning of work in this particular moment sort of says that work is perhaps in this post-pandemic moment no longer about simply getting a paycheck and living your life outside that paycheck, your ever-decreasing paycheck, but that rather people are looking at it again and seeing it as uh, work as a part of who they are. What's fascinating to me about this moment is People are realizing there are options that they didn't realize were there before. And to a certain degree, we all assume in some way or another we have a job and we work eight hours a day and we work five days a week. And, you know, if you're out in the world and you're not working at home as a mother then or father, that's what you do. And now we're in this climate where people are saying, well, I don't know, maybe I could do something different. There are people I work with, you know, not necessarily faculty members, but others who work at Yale who now several days a week are at home working, you know, so I see them less. So the whole climate of something that feels as unchangeable as college education, even that is different, and it's people making different kinds of choices. Well, this is interesting because I've never actually worked a nine-to-five job, so I don't have any of those expectations of that's what work looks like. I've always worked in, you know, places where your time is scheduled, like as a waitress or where I'm on my own clock or where I'm nailing different jobs together. So when I hear you say that, to me, it's funny. I kind of see a, a book that says this is how it's supposed to be because certainly we've all heard that's how it's supposed to that's be. That's true. <laughs> I've just almost never seen it No, be that's that very way. true. Right. In digging around a little bit to try and get a sense of – not necessarily how people are responding to the great resignation, but how companies are. I found some interesting things. There's a, I won't name names, but there's a large financial organization that is beginning a program in which some employees are going to work only 30 hours a week. They'll have a small pay cut, but they get to keep all of their benefits. So there's an option that wasn't necessarily available before. There's another large company that is basically saying they will eliminate, and, and this to me, like, why don't you do this all the time and not necessarily now in a climate of choice. They've decided they're going to eliminate 30% of their meetings so that oh, employees don't have to sit we'll in front We'll talk afterwards I so I can go ahead and, get, and apply. <laughs> exactly. I was like, why has no one had that idea before? But still, the fact that these very large organizations, these very large companies, are trying to come up with ways to give people some more control of their time, it's a fascinating moment. So the obvious question is, where is this going? Looking at the past, and I will say that 
I think this explains one of the reasons that things like infrastructure are so important because mm. one of the, the big things about the need for flexibility right now is because of the lack of child care, right. affordable child care. And if, in fact, we had the sorts of changes in our infrastructure system that the Democrats are talking about, it would enable people to go ahead and have more control over their lives and over their time and and actually over innovation, I think, because right. one of the reasons that the system has been as strict as it has been is because people needed to go to their jobs for health care and they needed to go to their jobs for the paycheck to have child care and they, needed to, they were sort of locked into a system right. that may not continue to be there. And there's the thing that people like to joke about or ignore, infrastructure. And we've locked it right in here, and I think with good reason, into the great resignation because it's going to be essential to however people put together their lives again or in new ways as we move on ahead in these changed times. We've kind of come full circle here. We started out talking about personal independence and people in the earliest days – of the nation, having a sense of personal independence in their work and sort of having ownership of their time. We've now come full circle to a moment when people are kind of at least looking in that direction, thinking about the way that they're using their time. Some people may be having new kinds of options. It's kind of interesting. I think as historians, we never assume that things are always getting better. We never assume that things are always getting worse. We assume that actually contingency, that's what we always assume is in place. But in a sense, people sort of reevaluating their lives and their connection with work. It's a long-standing question, but it's one that perhaps people haven't thought about in quite this way for quite a long time. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. And for a limited time, get 50% off the annual membership with a special code, history. That's cafe.com slash history. And the discount code is history. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder, wherever you get your podcasts.
Support for this episode has come from eBay. You know real when you feel it. And with eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you don't have to wonder. You know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be checked by experts and verified authentic. Maybe it's a designer handbag, sneakers that pop, jewelry that shines as bright as you do. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 